Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. That's our scripture reading this morning. And then our sermon passage this morning is taken from 2nd, not Samuel, but 2nd John. So I told you last week, it all depended on how things turned out uh, this week, whether or not we would be able to jump uh, on into 2nd Samuel, having closed out uh, the book of 1st Samuel. Uh, and uh, events overtook me, just preparation for uh, the, uh, the meeting yesterday down in Waco. Uh, yeah, there were things that, that happened that weren't expected completely. And uh, so uh, you're hearing a passage that uh, some of you may remember. Uh, we, uh, went, we worked our way through a few years back anyway. Second John verses 4 to 11 is our sermon passage. I'll go ahead and read the whole, the whole book to you. Uh, but it's just uh, verses 4 to 11 that will be our, our special focus this morning. So again, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, and then 2 John 4 to 11. Brothers and sisters, as God's word is about to be read, I just want to remind you that this is the Lord speaking to you. Not me, not man. This is God. We believe that God's word is his speech to mankind. And so it is incumbent upon us, it's very important for us to hear it, to listen attentively to God's word. Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, this is Paul, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word he had spoken, that he would not, they would not see his face again. 
and they accompanied him to the ship. Now turning to 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have, heard, we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This ends the reading of God's most holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful you have given to us your word. We thank you, dear Lord, that it is the fount, it is the source, it is the place where we know you, where we come to know you. We're grateful for how you have revealed yourself in creation in a general sense, but we are especially thankful, dear Lord, for your special revelation, which is the Bible. We're thankful that we have the privilege of holding it in our hands, of reading it each and every day, of hearing it read in this assembly, and of hearing it preached. We pray that you would remind us again and again, even today, of the truth, of that which is true, of the one who is truth itself. So please, O Lord, lead us to your well and cause us to drink deeply from it, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in our passage this morning, we get into the heart of this very brief letter in which John instructs the elect lady and her children to watch themselves and to be on guard against anyone who teaches something different than the teaching of Christ. Now, that phrase, you may remember, but that phrase in verse 1, elect lady and her children, most likely, John here is not writing to a literal woman about her literal children. He's most likely speaking figuratively to refer to the church to whom he is writing. And John is, in, is writing to encourage the elect lady, the church, by expressing his joy at the knowledge that some of the members, he doesn't say how few or how many, but at least some of them are walking in the truth. Now based on verse 4, it appears that John had recently visited this church to whom he writes. And he sent this letter to them as a follow-up to his visit. 
And the verses of this morning's passage, which form the body of the letter, John encourages the church to walk in the truth. He warns them to keep watch over themselves regarding the truth, and then he challenges them to guard against those who peddle lies instead of the truth. Well, throughout the sermon, I would ask you to keep this thought in front of you. The truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh is the essence of the Christian faith. Let me say that again. The truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh is the essence of the Christian faith. The sermon has three parts. The first, believing the truth. The second, keeping watch. And the third, home security. Again, the first, believing the truth. The second, keeping watch. And the third, home security. So let's look at the first point of the sermon, believing the truth. John writes in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John here is expressing genuine joy. He is very thankful to see, uh, to, to have witnessed uh, that there were some, he doesn't say how many, but that there were some who were walking in the truth. And yet in doing so, he also acknowledges by the way his words in this, uh, the way that he phrases his words in this voice, that not all who are in the church are true followers of Jesus Christ. Now we know that both from scripture itself and our own experience that that is the case, that not everyone who is in the church is truly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our church doors are open to all. We invite people to come in, sinners who don't know Christ, we invite them to come in. We also recognize that some who have made a profession of faith in Christ, it may not be a a true profession of faith. Some fall away, never to return to the Lord, and we have to conclude that they never knew Him to begin with. Now, John uses the metaphor of walking in the truth as a way to describe the life of the Christian your Christians were walking with the Lord. A Christian isn't merely someone who has given verbal assent to having faith in Jesus Christ and then leaves it at that. A Christian has to live like it. That's what John means. We walk with Christ. We, we live. This is our life. We have no other life anymore as Christians. We have to walk as Christians. And so this phrase, walking in the truth, it encompasses both the faith and the life of the person who professes to follow Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote, to walk in the truth includes both believing it, especially the central truth of the incarnation, and obeying it, seeking to conform our lives to it. It's not just simply, not enough to to just say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. We have to allow the truth of who Jesus is to conform us into his image and his likeness. And so John here is rejoicing not that there have been a large number of professions of faith, but that some of those who have professed to have faith in Jesus are actually living like they have faith in Christ. In verse 5 he asks a question, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now this verse makes it reasonable to conclude that John isn't writing to an individual woman. Think about that for a moment. Because if he was, it could be easily misconstrued. There are other reasons to think that most likely he's writing to a church to whom he refers as the elect lady. 
John used similar language in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, where he wrote there, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And then he says to love one another. So this is the sixth and final time in John's letters, the first five being found in 1 John, where he instructs Christians to love one another. Well, verse 6, John defines what love is. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So John has now shifted from speaking of a single commandment in verse 5 to commandments, that is in the plural, in the beginning of verse 6. And then he goes back to speaking of a single commandment at the end of verse 6. The sum of the commandments is to love one another, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So when John writes at the end of verse 6, so that you should walk in it, he's very likely referring to back to walking in the truth, as he said in verse 5, walking in love. We are to walk in obedience to God's commands, which is the definition of walking in truth. And so if you're being obedient to the Lord, to his commands, you will love. You'll love one another. You'll love the Lord. That takes us to the second point of the sermon, keeping watch. We are to walk in it, in the truth, in obedience to God's commands, because as John writes in verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Walking in God's commandments will protect you from those who would deceive you. It's necessary for us to walk in the truth because there are so many peddlers of deceit out there, of falsehood, of error. Walking in the truth makes us able to recognize deceit for what it truly is. Walking in the truth, knowing the truth, helps you to to recognize the designs of Satan and those who are on his side. One commentator writes, the way to avoid being taken in by deceivers is to continue walking in the truth. If you stray, and, and Christians do, true believers do, we're prone to wander. We begin to, to, to doubt. We have a harder time identifying what is true, what is false. The deceiver, John writes, are those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. They deny the incarnation of the Son of God. And the incarnation of the Son of God is eloquently summarized in the Athanasian Creed, written around A.D. 500. We had the privilege, the joy of reading that together last week. And it reads in part, But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And He is man from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. 
As this creed says, most certainly echoing the words of John in our passage, it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. This is precisely what false teachers do not do. And so those who come along seeking to deceive, they will ultimately deny the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he did. Oftentimes, they'll say he's less than God. He wasn't really God. He was a man like us. Sometimes they'll say, well, you, you can be like Jesus. You can become a God like Jesus did. Just not like the Father, because Jesus is not a God in the same way that the Father was. But what John is saying is that anyone who does not confess the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the deceiver and the antichrist, as John puts it at the end of verse 7. Now what John says later in our passage, particularly verse 10, makes it clear that he isn't speaking about a neighbor or a co-worker who happens to be a Muslim or a Mormon. These are unbelievers. They aren't in a position of authority over us. They're not going from church to church teaching false doctrine. I've never once in the eight or so years of being in this building had a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim come to the doors of this church and ask if they could be given a platform from which to speak and talk about their religion. It's not really, at least at this point in the history of our nation or the history of this church, something that we have had to worry about. John isn't talking here about your average unbeliever, so you don't need to go around and regard your co-workers as, as antichrists, threatening you, possibly about to unseat you from your faith. He's referring to so-called Christians who are deliberately trying to lead people astray. Jesus prophesied to his disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 5 and following, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And so John here is warning that Christ's prophecy in Mark 13 is coming to pass. What are believers to do? Well, Jesus told his disciples, see that no one led them astray. John gives the corollary uh, to that in verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. You, brothers and sisters, have a duty to prevent yourself from being led astray. And what that means is if you are led astray, though the person who does the leading has culpability, is at least partly to blame, so are you. So am I if we're led astray. It's because we have failed in some way or other to walk in the truth. Now John is going to make clear that in verse 9 that keeping watch has to do with abiding in the teaching of Christ. And abiding in the doctrines that he and his apostles taught. The danger of not keeping watch is that a person in the church can lose what we have worked for, as John says in the middle of verse 8. Instead, John wants his, his audience, those who read this letter, to win a full reward. Now, commentators differ on what they think John means by losing what, what was worked for and winning a full reward. Now, some think that John is telling them that they must ensure that they receive the full reward for their labors instead of a lesser amount when they stand before God in heaven. That, that's a, a potentially viable interpretation of this passage. It's not exactly clear. Others, because of what John writes in verse 9, believe that he's speaking of salvation itself here. Not that they could actually lose salvation, but that in following the false teachers in their error, they would demonstrate that they never had true salvation to begin with. 
And so in verse 9, John writes, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now it needs to be said, and some of you could probably testify to this fact in your own lives, a true Christian can believe error. If we were to conduct a poll, if we were to interview everyone in this church, we'd probably find that most everyone in this church has some sort of error that we hold to. A true Christian can believe error, and a true Christian can be deceived for a time, but a true Christian ultimately will abide in the teaching of Christ and not stray from it. Now, the teaching of Christ there is an ambiguous phrase, and probably deliberately so on John's part. It can mean both the teaching that Christ himself gave, but it also can mean the teaching about Christ that was delivered to them, that is, to these people to whom John writes, by the apostles. What we believe about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christian faith. And so professing Christians can be led down a false trail, but those who truly belong to Jesus, those who truly believe in him, will abide, will remain, will continue in his teaching. Those who don't abide don't have God. It's as simple as that. But those who do abide in the teaching of Christ have both the Father and the Son. And the Spirit here is certainly implied, though not explicitly mentioned. And so we must watch ourselves. So that we're not led astray. But remember that abiding in the teaching of Christ isn't set up, isn't up to you alone. Yes, you need to watch yourselves. And John gives them this warning to, to help them keep watch over themselves. But in doing so, what is John doing? He is keeping watch over them as well, right? So watch yourselves, people. But guess what? You've got people watching over you. you you've got an overwatch. Years ago, there were a few of us who went to see a movie. I guess it's okay to say this. I don't remember the rating of it, but it was a good rah-rah American movie, American Sniper. And we had a great, I think it was just a group of men from the church. We had a good time. Probably ought to do that sometime again if the theaters ever open up fully. But you remember that there were those on the ground who were going around door to door. I think in uh, Iraq, Fallujah. They had to do these house-to-house missions where they were going looking for insurgents. And then there was the overwatch. There was the snipers. There were the people on the tops of the buildings watching over them, telling them, you've got enemy coming at your way. You can't see them. You've got enemy coming your way. Take cover. Take evasive action. Get inside a room. Get safe. But the overwatch would also take shots for them, help eliminate the enemy, take them out. And this is in some way, maybe not so elaborately, John maybe didn't have the picture of American Sniper in his mind, but, but in some ways that's what he's referring to. You don't have to do this by yourself. John was serving as an overwatch for these people in this church whom he loved. You too have an overwatch. You, you've got overseers. You've got people who are caring for you, watching out for you, ensuring that you are protected, ensuring that, that the pulpit is kept safe so that error does not come from it. Now Paul in his speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he tells them in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. 
He warns them of fierce wolves who will come in after his departure to tear apart the flock. And then he says in verse 31, Paul does, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is reminding them of his labors and ministrations in the gospel. He's reminding them that they have been well equipped. They can do this now. He's, he's going away. He knows that his end is near. He's going to Jerusalem to stand trial. He knows the Spirit has already revealed to him that he will suffer greatly and that he will never see the Ephesian church, the Ephesian elders again. He knows this. But he's reminding them that they have been equipped now to serve as that overwatch to their flock, to Christ's flock whom he has entrusted to these men. And so you're to keep watch over yourselves But you must also remember that God has put overseers in place to keep watch over you as well. God keeps watch over you. He's done this by ensuring that you have overseers. And so having elders, having a session, having a pastor, this is one of the ways, certainly not the only, that God himself keeps watch over your souls. God guards you. He protects you. He cares for you. And so by being a member of Christ's church, you are placing yourselves under the care of the elders of this church who themselves have been ordained for the purpose of keeping watch over Christ's flock. But ultimately, we all need to remember this because we who sit in that position of overseer, we will fail. We'll make mistakes. We'll mess things up. We won't get it all right every time. Ultimately, it is God who keeps watch over you and over me. He keeps us. He protects us. As John wrote in his first letter, God abides in us and we in him. Each of you here has a responsibility to watch yourself. And there are men who have been also been entrusted with your care. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is your overwatch. Jesus Christ is on guard duty. Jesus Christ is your shepherd. He is watching over your soul. He is keeping watch over his sheep. And that takes us to the third and the final section, home security. In verses 10 and 11, John writes, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, John is now giving some practical ways in which you can keep watch over yourselves. People always what is the practical application of this passage for me in my life? Well, John gives it to you. He's giving it to these people. Now, the context is somewhat different, and yet we can apply it even in our own lives today. He's challenging his readers to guard themselves against false teachers. He says that they are not even to let false teachers into their homes. Now, in 3 John... John commends Gaius for welcoming true, true teachers into his home and showing hospitality to them. Here, he urges his readers to exercise caution. Now, we have to remember the context in which John is writing. Showing hospitality in John's day was a little different than it is for us today. One commentator writes that hosts guaranteed their guests as worthy individuals to the rest of the community. These hosts were vouching This guy's a good guy. See, I'm going to let him into my home. I'm going to allow him to be around my children. I'm going to allow him to be an influence in my life, in my family's life. And so a Christian taking in a false teacher would give legitimacy to that false teacher. He would gain a foothold in the community by which he could lead others astray. 
But the other thing that we need to remember, and it, it really has only, it hasn't been that long in the world's history that, that ends that hotels were legitimate places for people to stay. The ends of that day were, for the most part, houses of ill repute, if you catch my drift. So Christians showing hospitality to other Christians, especially missionaries, was essential to the spread of the gospel. Missionaries would not have been able to travel in the way that they did if they were reliant upon the hotels of the day. And so to allow someone into your home who was a stranger to your community was to vouch for that person, to say that he was reputable and trustworthy. And so again, this passage is not saying that you should not allow your unbelieving neighbor to come into your house to share hospitality with them. But what it does mean is that when we share uh, our, our, our home with someone who purports to be a Christian but in fact is not, who purports to be a teacher of the true faith but in fact is not, that's a very dangerous thing. We also need to keep in mind that the churches in that day, they did not have their own buildings in which they could meet. By the time that John is writing these letters, Christians are no longer meeting in the synagogues in the way that they had been in the early, early days of the church. The Jews had kicked them out. They didn't have buildings to meet in. They had to meet in their homes. And so having a false teacher in your home, if you happen to be the person who hosts the church in your home, that's a major problem. And so John is also saying that a person who comes to them but but does not bring the teaching of Christ is not to be allowed into the assembly to teach. But then at the end of verses 10 and 11, John goes further and he says they are not even to greet such a person. By greeting, John here means they're not to welcome them into their house. The person who welcomes him him in shares in his wicked works The person who welcomes him in shares in the false teaching of that person. If people trust you and you welcome someone into their midst who begins to teach false doctrine, those people's trust in you will be eroded. It's for that reason that when we allow people to come and speak in our church, when we allow men, ministers to come and preach in our church, we're we're selective. And we have over the years told folks, no, I'm sorry. We can't allow you to preach or teach in this church. We can't do it. If people trust you and you welcome someone into their midst who begins to teach false doctrine, those people's trust in you will go away. And so we need to be on guard. Inviting false teachers into our homes or into the midst of our church makes us vulnerable to the attacks of our enemy. In distrusting false teachers, we are enabled and encouraged to trust true teachers even more. We, you, me, we need to actively defend ourselves as individuals, as families, and as a church against those who would lead us astray. We have to be on our guard. We have to be careful. Conversely, we should warmly welcome those into our midst who proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Now, in, in a few months, there's going to be an opportunity for, for some of you, perhaps, maybe, maybe a couple of households, to welcome into your midst and allow you to stay with them one of our missionaries. In September, I believe it is. We're going to have a missionary, for a missionary of the OPC, come and give a presentation, and he needs a place to stay for a night or two. That's a golden opportunity for you to welcome this person into your home, to show them love. 
So what does all this say? What is John getting at here? We need to be well equipped to identify false teaching, which means that we need to diligently study the teaching of Christ in order to abide in the true teaching and the truth itself. We need to be on our guard, to be cautious, but not suspicious of every single person. We need to know the truth. The teaching of Christ at its most basic level is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh to die for the sins of His people. Believe this. Believe this, brothers and sisters. And you will abide with Christ forever. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You, dear Lord that you abide with us and we with you. We thank you that by your spirit and your word you have caused us to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. You're faithful and true. You will keep all of your promises. We can depend upon you. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would keep a watch over our souls. We pray that the overseers of this church would keep a watch over this flock's souls. We pray that each individual member would know the truth so well that we are able truly to guard ourselves. Lord, we pray that you'd help us not to live in fear, that you'd help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as little doves. We pray, dear Lord, that you'd help us to trust in you and know that it is you ultimately who keeps watch over us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.